When I was in high school, my soccer coach was also a pastor in town. He was a real man of faith. And, and somehow, right before my senior year of high school, he took our team to a Christian camp for a week. A week-long Christian camp. He built it as kind of a team bonding experience where we'd have a lot of fun together. But also in the evenings, here's some talks about faith and bigger questions in life. And so we, we went, we bonded, we had fun. Um, but in terms of the faith element, we were a, a tough bunch, pretty cynical, and we, were, and we were just a bunch of teenage boys just living for ourselves and, and the things right in front of us, and it didn't help that most of us had been brought up in a sort of nominal faith tradition that we experienced as tremendously boring, and we just thought it was so lame. So we came in already determined, like, well, God is boring and lame and miserable, and church is the antithesis of fun and life, and, and he must want us to be boring and lame and, and miserable, too. So we, we were tough. Uh, one guy on our team was actually opening up quite a bit over the course of the week, though. He was our team captain and really kind of the, the most popular guy in school, a star athlete, like, really popular, really good-looking. His, his love life was active, you could say. He was always in the center of the biggest parties, and, but he was really taken by Jesus as they talked about him throughout the week and, and the love of Jesus. And he started to say, well, I think I might receive Jesus into my life. I don't know. But he had one question for the leaders of the, the retreat. He's like, well, if I receive Jesus in my life, would I have to change anything about my life? And they kind of said, well, yeah, I mean, you can come as you are. He will receive you as you are, no strings attached, but as you walk with Jesus, it, it does become not about living for yourself, but living for him. And for all of us, it, it, it does entail some kind of change as we give our wills over to his. And at that point, he said, oh, well, forget it. Forget it. And, and the rest of us were not helpful in that, because we all thought, yeah, I wouldn't do that either. I mean, we all thought he had the, the life. I mean, why would you want anything better than what he had going for him? And we were determined, like, we told you, God's boring. He's out to wreck your life, ruin your life, turn you into a miserable, boring person. We told you so. And um, man, I'm so sad when I think about that now, because what I didn't know then, but have come to know and come to really experience, fully believe, is Life with Jesus is more like how Eugene Peterson describes in the book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is the series we're doing here at The Journey. He describes it this way in the chapter we'll look at this week. The way of discipleship is not a reduction of what we already are, not a reduction of our lives, not a subtraction from what we are used to. Rather, he will expand our capacities and fill us up with life so that we overflow. I didn't know it then, but man, I, I know it now. Life with God is not a subtraction. It's not a bummer. It's not, it does not suck life from it. It breathes life in, adds life to, and multiplies life in and through around me to the point of overflow. It really is a blessed life to walk with God. And it's not all roses. I still have struggles problems, difficulties, sure. I've got 99 problems, but the Lord ain't one. Amen. He does not take away, but adds. And life with him is indeed blessed, not diminished. So we're calling this week's sermon Blessing. We're going to look at Psalm 128. We've been going through, along with this book, the Psalms of Ascent in the book of Psalms. And so we'll turn to Psalm 128 now. 
It's on page 442 of most of the Pew Bibles if you want to look there and follow along. But all these psalms describe life with God, life on a pilgrimage of going from where we've been to where God is taking us, the life he wants for us. And here is one descriptor of life with God, Psalm 128. It says, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. So this psalm is about blessing. It starts with kind of the, the first verse of a thesis statement for this psalm. Blessed are all who fear the Lord and who walk in obedience to him. Then the rest of the psalm fills out blessing. Verses 2 to 4 are kind of a picture of different blessings in a blessed life. And verses 5 and 6 are a pronouncement of blessing over a people. But blessing is there all throughout. And blessing is present all throughout the Bible, really, from beginning to end. Starting in Genesis chapter 1, when God first creates human beings, the very first thing he does is bless them. Creates male and female in his image. Blesses them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And all throughout the rest of Scripture, in a world tainted by the curse and filled with curse and cursing and frustration and difficulty, it's God who blesses and works and intervenes in lives to bless lives and bless people. He's an agent of blessing. And it's here as well. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, walk in obedience to him. The word blessed is interesting. So Eugene Peterson's chapter title in the book on this psalm is called Happiness. And a couple weeks ago, Pastor Tom kind of differentiated between the joy God gives us and mere worldly happiness. So I didn't want to confuse us on this, but I also think blessed is a is a better word for it. But anyway, the word blessed here in Hebrew is, is in the Old Testament a lot, and sometimes it is translated happy, like happy is the one who, who walks with the Lord, or blessed. But, but he gets at the same basic idea that, you know, God is not out to ruin your life, not out to just make it harder, more difficult, and less interesting, but quite the opposite. It's a blessed life. Blessed here means a couple of things. It's a couple of layers of meaning. One, it means to just be under God's blessing. It's just kind of a state, a, a status, to be under his blessing. Regardless of how we feel or what our experience is like, that we are blessed. We are under the blessing of God, that he is predisposed to, to bless us. But also it does have an element of finding some kind of fulfillment, that this blessing is not just a heady thing, but something we're meant to experience, something that actually intersects and comes into our lives, that God actually blesses us in real ways. Now, there are a couple of qualifiers here. It's blessed are those who fear the Lord and who walk in obedience to him. And the fear of the Lord here has to do with our heart, our posture towards him. It doesn't mean cowering in fear, like scared of God, like he's mean and whatever, but kind of a heart of reverence towards God. Just adoring God, worshiping God, seeing him for all of the glory of who he is. Fearing him in that way, just revering, adoring, loving God. And then walking in obedience to him. So not only our heart's posture, but also our life, how we live. To actually live in obedience to what he says. To do things God's way rather than our own way and submit our will to God's. That 
is a blessed life. A life of loving and obeying God is called blessed here. And the rest of the psalm spells out some of what blessing can look like. And now before we get into it, though, I want to name a kind of obvious tension when we run into a psalm like this. And maybe you felt it when I read it out loud, all these particular things. Is Actually, there's a, a lot of Christians' lives don't really look like this. This picture of a beautiful family, all happy and gathered around a table. It's big. There's a long, loving marriage and lots of kids, and they're all flourishing. Everybody's happy. There's prosperity, material well-being. There's health, long life, living to see your children's children, all this kind of stuff. And um, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people who fear God and walk in obedience to him whose lives don't really match up to this. And what do you do with that? It's a tension. A couple of years ago, I I shared in a little more detail in a sermon uh, about a, a long period of my wife Liz and my life where we, we were struggling to conceive, unable to conceive, and just the frustration, the, the, the sadness, and the confusion of all that. And in, in the thick of the pain that that brought, I would hear things like, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. And just think, okay, I, what am I supposed to do with that? And you might hear some of these things, you know, this beautiful family, all this, this happiness, and people gathered around, prosperity, peace, and, and wonder, well, what am I supposed to make of that? That is just not my experience, or people I know who really love God. Is there something wrong with the psalm that's just nonsense? Is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with God? But what do we make of it? So before we go further, I want to just highlight three false takeaways that I want us to avoid. They're tempting when we come across a psalm like this. Uh, but three false takeaways that are actually lies. So one is this, that, well, God just doesn't want to bless me. We could have a cynical approach to a psalm like this. Well, this is, you know, it sounds great, but this is just a bunch of nonsense. Like, God, this is clearly not how things work. This is not my life. God must just not want to bless me. Or you can have the kind of cynicism that was present on my soccer team of, God wants to bless me. What could God really have to offer my life? I don't think he can make my life better than it is or better than I can make it. God's just out to, you know, make me boring. But we could be cynical about the blessing of God, either that he's, he just doesn't want to bless us or that his blessing is, is deficient or lame or something like that. A cynical approach. But this is just not true, that God does not want to bless us. It's not. And neither is this. False takeaway number two, that God will bless me if I am good and if I do the right things. It's easy to take, oh, bless is the one who does this, this will happen. Uh, this, though, is what I would call religion, kind of the lie of religion, the spirit of poisonous religion that infects the whole human race, regardless of what particular faith practice or non-faith practice you have. This idea that somehow God or the universe or whatever kind of rewards me according to my goodness or my good deeds, my good actions. It's a transactional thing, and that's what God does. He blesses those who are, who are good, and he, he doesn't bless those who are bad, and that is a religious mindset. It infects its way into our, our walk with Jesus sometimes, but it's also a, a terrible lie, and the actual antithesis of the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel, which is free grace, that God's blessing is not something we earn, but is freely given to people by him and it's not a transactional thing. And, and if you're operating in a religious economy, you might read a psalm like this, and if, if your life matches up with it, you might think, oh, I'm pretty good. 
Or if your life doesn't match up with this, you may wonder, oh, well, what, what am I doing wrong? Am I not fearing God enough? Am I not obeying him hard enough? Am I, am I not praying enough? Am I not praying correctly? Like, there must be something wrong with me. Well, this is just a lie that, that we can't take away from a psalm like this. Third false takeaway from Psalm 128 is that God must bless me in these particular ways. Like, these specific things spelled out here, that's what, that's what I'm signing up for. This, this is what life with God has to bring for me. You know, I'm waiting for that special someone. I'm waiting for those kids. I'm waiting for that financial windfall because that's what, that's what we're in, in for, right? And then if those things don't start to happen or our, our health fails or something, we start to shake our fist at God like, well, he's just failing at his part of the bargain here. These are all things I want to make sure we don't take away from this psalm. And all along this series, we've talked about the journey with Jesus as one, he, he leads us out of some place where we've been, where we've been thinking and living, and into life with him as he wants it. And here, I think God wants to take us out of cynicism, out of religion, and out of entitlement, and into a life of blessing, where we know he is predisposed and wanting to bless our lives. That really is what he is like, and that his blessing is freely given, but is far beyond the particulars of our given wish list that we might bring to him. Our imaginations for what a blessed life looks like are too small, and God wants to freely give his blessing to us. The specific things mentioned in Psalm 128, I want to be clear, are purely illustrative. They are illustration. Peterson highlights that in his book. He says that this illustration here is conditioned by the Hebrew culture, but it's just an example that we need not reproduce exactly in order to experience blessing. The things exactly as they're written here, we don't need to be reproduced in our lives necessarily to experience a blessed life. If you don't believe that, then let's just look at the life of Jesus Christ, who Christians would say lived the perfect human life. No one else has ever lived a perfect human life, but Jesus did. And while that perfect life actually didn't include any of this stuff exactly as it's written in Psalm 128. He never married, never found that special romantic connection. He did not have a wife like a fruitful vine in his house. Didn't even have a house, really. No place to lay his head. He was not materially well off prospering in that way. Uh, in terms of uh, longevity, you know, in his earthly life, it wasn't long. He was cut short in the prime of his, of his years. So any notion that a blessed life, or a good life, meaningful, fulfilling life, must include these specific things, you just look at the life of Jesus to see that really is not the case. It's really not. not it's, these are not must-haves for a life that's blessed. So then is all of this stuff just, you know, silly? Should we not, should we ignore it? Well, not so fast. I actually think as illustrations, the things mentioned specifically in Psalm 128 are illustrative of the kinds of blessing that God does bring into the lives of his children. That he blesses us in these types of ways, though our vision for what that might look like can be a little bit too narrow sometimes. So I want to look at four types of blessing that we see in Psalm 128 and, and explore a little bit how Jesus brings this about in our lives. So one, 
type of blessing in this psalm is the blessing of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, and children like olive shoots around your table. This is a very fruitful image, both of, you know, kind of be fruitful and multiply, that kind of thing, literally, and also kind of life begetting more life. You know, your, your children are like little shoots that will one day grow up into big trees of their own, which beget more shoots, which beget more life, and life multiplies in this way. And really, the blessing of God is meant to be fruitful and to multiply. It's a multiplicative thing that is meant to overflow and to be shared and to multiply in and through our lives. But it doesn't just have to look like, you know, earthly fertility and having lots of babies. That's one blessing, but man, God, I, God wants to make our lives fruitful in ways that are so far beyond that. And Jesus says this in John chapter 15, which will be up on the screen. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. It's a fruitful image. The whole chapter, John 15, is a, a picture of life with Jesus, and it over and over again emphasizes that our lives will bear fruit, fruit that will last. And in this chapter, Jesus ties that to loving him and obeying him. The very things in this psalm, you know, fear God, walk in obedience. Jesus says, you love me, you obey my commands. That what, that's what it means to remain in him. And as we do, he will bear fruit through our lives. It's his intention to make our lives fruitful. But maybe not always in ways that we can quantify or count or in the ways that we expect when we invest in a certain way, but he will make us fruitful. It's hard for us to know or measure what fruit really is that God brings about through our lives. Even in in 20 years of walking with God, I, I look back, things I thought were really fruitful at one time have not really panned out, or things that I didn't think made much of a difference have actually made a huge difference over time in people's lives. But basically, if you obey Jesus, you will put yourself out there in, in investing in other people, in, in loving people in Jesus' name, in relationally pouring yourself out into other people's lives, in sharing the gospel, in serving others, in working in a way that we talked about last week that's in partnership with God, that is a fruitful thing. And God will make our lives bear fruit. As we walk in obedience to Jesus, we will give sacrificially and generously of our resources, our time, our energy, and our talents towards the things of his kingdom. And those investments, maybe they pay off in the, in the immediate in ways that we can see, but man, they are definitely fruitful in the long run in ways that only God and his full economy can fully understand. I think about the people who built this church over a hundred years ago, a bunch of Swedish immigrants who, who loved God and, and obeyed him. They wanted to see him worshipped here in this city, this new place they were in. And they obeyed him to put their resources forward, a bunch of real kind of working tradesmen building a church out of their own sweat and resources in order to bless lives and see God worshipped. And they saw that to an extent. A church was planted of, of all Swedish people. And, but many of the people who, who did that passed away only seeing a glimmer of the fruit that would come of their investment, of their obedience. They're building this place is still bearing fruit. That act of obedience is still being fruitful in our lives in ways they could have never imagined. That's the kind of fruit God wants to bring about in our lives as we take steps to obey and to invest in the things of his kingdom. He will make us bear fruit that will last. Second type of blessing that's in Psalm 128, 
is prosperity. It says it here, blessings and prosperity will be yours. May you see prosperity. Jerusalem. Now, I want to be careful here because what's known as the prosperity gospel is probably the biggest heresy and false teaching in the church worldwide today. This idea that if you put your faith in Jesus, that somehow you will financially prosper. Your bank account will grow. This is often preached by Christian leaders who wear fancy clothes and drive really nice cars, maybe airplanes, and, and kind of sell that. as you know, If you just kind of sow into the kingdom of God, you're going to be richer and healthier, and uh, all this stuff is going to go well for you. Well, not necessarily. I mean, the, the vast majority of the world's Christians today are actually quite poor. And this is a false teaching that, that really is damaging in the lives of people, and, it, and it's not true. But make no mistake, God does want to prosper you. He really does. But it's not limited to a certain notion of prosperity that our world projects that has to do with material things and, and that sort of thing. But it's a type of prosperity in which we flourish no matter what is going on and no matter how well things are going. You see it portrayed in Psalm 1, which begins much the same way as Psalm 128. It says, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Again, blessed is the person who just loves God and walks according to his ways. Whatever he does, he prospers. That's the kind of prosperity that God, I think, really does want to bring into our lives. It's not limited to the economy and our bank account and our employment status and what kind of stuff we have, but that no matter what the state of those things, we will prosper. We will flourish as people. Our souls will be good. Our character will be growing. We as humans will flourish no matter what the circumstances may be. It's a kind of prosperity that doesn't, we don't just prosper when certain conditions are met, but we prosper whatever the conditions might be. The old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, gets at this, you know, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever the heck is going on, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's a paraphrase. But that's the idea, that God wants us to prosper in our character, in our soul, in our being, in our walk with him, whether things are good, bad, in plenty, or in want. That kind of prosperity. I mean, that's deep. That's profound. Because, you know, you can't control everything that has to do with your financial prosperity. But whatever happens, God intends for his children to prosper. Third type of blessing in Psalm 128 is relational. This is a very relational picture, and, and blessing is meant to be, to be shared in community and with others, not just a, a thing to have to ourselves. And, and here the picture, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. So the picture here is marriage and children, which are wonderful blessings. They are. But, oh, they are not the extent of a blessed relational life. You know, they have their own challenges, believe me. And, and singleness has its riches and its benefits. You know, we tend to downplay all that stuff. 
And somehow, uh, the worldly notion of relational and intimacy fulfillment always kind of boils down to some sort of romantic thing. And that is just way too small. That shows very little imagination. And the church feeds into that when we make an idol out of marriage. But it takes a good, any idol is taking a good thing and making an ultimate thing out of it. That we must, this must be true in order to be blessed. And we reinforce this in little ways, you know, when you say, oh, you're still single? Oh, well, God's got someone for you. Don't say that. That, it, that's just said, oh, well, you can't really be blessed until you, until you have this sort of thing. It's not true. And the church has millions of books on Christian marriage. I'm grateful for them all. But I'm grateful for this book that came out this week, Seven Myths About Singleness, by Sam Alberry, who's a pastor in the UK. It's a beautiful vision for the life of the church as a whole to flourish, for singles to flourish and find the church as family, to be truly family of a church made of people who are married and unmarried, whose families of origin are healthy and dysfunctional. We all find the deepest relational fulfillment of family in this body, this family called the church, which is really all people's best hope for relational fulfillment, single or otherwise. And the Bible talks really highly of of a single life, and the church needs to do it too and make it a really flourishing existence. And those of us who, who are married, you know, our little unit, whatever it is in our household, was not meant to be the be-all, end-all of our family life and relational community either. Last couple of weeks ago in February break, my, my household took a vacation together. and um, That included Liz, me, our son, Javiel, and our housemate, Dave, a single guy in his 30s. We've always had single people living with us, and we... Went on vacation together, and this woman there's making small talk with us. Where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. And she looks at us and says, well, are you, are you all a family? And I just said, yeah. I mean, of course we are. That is, but I could see the wheels turning in her head. And I just explained, oh, well, Dave, you know, he lives with us. He's kind of like an uncle. But, but no, really, we are family. And, and what they saw was just a little snippet of this larger family we're a part of here in this church and in this community, which is just a teeny little snippet of the family worldwide that God has called to himself in the church that we are part of. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that God calls us into. I want to look at uh, a quick passage from Mark chapter 10 in the Gospels. This is a chapter in which people really come head on with the cost of following Jesus and, and kind of surrendering our lives to him. And there's some relational cost sometimes that comes with that as well. And Peter, the apostle, says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus replies by saying this, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, life portrayed here is not a walk in the park. There's cost and there's persecutions along the way, but look at the the family, the rich communal blessing that's present here. A hundred times homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children. That is what we're 
brought into as a church. And when we just siphon off into our nuclear units, we come up so far short of what God intends for us as a community where we all find deep relational belonging, being known, being cared for across generations, finding family, finding our elders and our youngers, uh, just doing life together. That's what God intends for us. He does want to bless our lives relationally, but let's not have too small a vision for what that looks like, and let this be a place where anybody who walks in can find a true family, healing, restorative community. Finally, there is this thing at the end here, in the age to come, eternal life. Eternal life. That leads to our fourth blessing found in Psalm 128, which is longevity. We have an earthly picture of it here in the end. May you live to see your children's children. That is a type of longevity. It's great, living out your years till you're old and gray and you see generations. It's a wonderful blessing when it happens. But again, I think a lot of us know people who really love and walk with the Lord for whom that actually doesn't happen. I think of Martin Luther King who was still in his 30s and the night before he was assassinated in his final speech think kind of knew what was ahead and said, well, like any of you, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not worried about that now. I just want to do God's will. Longevity in earthly terms is awesome, and the lack of it is tremendously painful on this side of things. But believe me that the Christian hope is not for a long life. It is for eternal life. In light of which, the difference between 30 and 90 years actually becomes quite negligible. But that is the the hope that we're promised. Perhaps the most famous scripture of all, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ultimately, this is what it means to fear the Lord and to walk in obedience with him is to believe in his son, Jesus. And for those who do the promise, no matter how many years we have on this side of things, is for an eternal life without end. Just so hard to imagine. I, I thought maybe a picture could, could help. A picture that looks really nice right now of a seashore. If you look at this, it looks nice. Um, Imagine, you know, if there were one or two more or less grains of sand in this picture. What difference would that really make? And again, on this, on this side of things, each year is, is, is like everything. But in light of eternity, it's really not. This, it's like a year is a grain of sand on a giant seashore. And when we get to that place and when we experience eternal life, all this stuff, you know, what, whatever relational blessings we experienced or didn't experience, whatever level of prosperity we experienced or didn't experience, whatever kind of fruit we saw in our lifetime and what it looked like, and however many years we lived, it's all going to seem pretty small, and we will count ourselves blessed people. We will count ourselves blessed people And we will live with Jesus in eternal blessing, enjoying the fruitfulness, enjoying prosperity with him, enjoying a relational, rich, 
intimate life among his people and living forever that way. It's astounding. And I think our imaginations for what a blessed life looks like can be way too small sometimes. C.S. Lewis said it this way, in the weight of glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. And man, I, I hope we don't settle, friends, and be far too easily pleased, to be, have too little desire. Let's not settle for a life of, of uh, cynicism where we keep the blessing of God at arm's length and don't let it in and don't believe that it's there or that it's good. Let's not settle for that. Let's not settle for a life of religion, of transactional faith where we try to do good in order to squeeze out of God whatever kind of blessing or goodness we can get. And let's not settle for a life of entitlement where we limit our picture of what blessing in our life looks like to particular things on our particular wish list or our culture's wish list for us. Let's not settle for any of that, but let us come to God with open hands, believing that he does indeed want to bless us, that he is predisposed to bring blessing into our lives, to add and multiply and not to take away. And let's come to him with open hands, receiving his blessing as the grace, the free gift, that it is, and not anything we earn or strive for. And let's keep our hands open for how God wants to bless us in whatever form he does, saying, bless me as you define blessing, Lord, not as I do, and open up our, our personal wish list and hand it over and receive his blessing in our lives. And so I want to actually encourage you to stand up now, and if you are open to that, actually open up your hands it's a physical posture, way of saying, Lord, I choose to believe in your blessing and I choose to receive it freely as a gift in whatever form you choose to bring it into me. And so, Father, I pray that as we are open before you, I trust that your hands are wide open before us to receive us and to pour out your blessing into our lives and I pray, Lord, for each of us here and for our church as a whole, you would make us fruitful, truly fruitful in ways that last, that multiply far beyond our years and our generations. That you would cause us to prosper, Lord, in a way that is not contingent on circumstances, but that we would flourish in our life with you and grow in our character and be well with our souls no matter what that you would make us a relationally rich community, family to one another and to those who need it, truly open to all the people that you've brought into your kingdom to share in this church together. And, and Lord, would you cause us not to come up anywhere short of eternal life. We want to live with you in this way forever forever. Thank you for making the way to draw us into that. In Jesus' name.